I'll be reading the fifth chapter of Isaiah today. Um, If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I have my eight-year-old daughter running the computer for me, so (laughs) good luck, Elisa. Okay. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and the briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, and his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have a lyre and a harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched and thirst with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw inequity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come, that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men at mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his guilt, of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, So their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. 
For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp and their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey, they carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it that day like the growling of the sea, and if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. That chapter stands in a dark contrast to what we'll see this morning, the way God created his world to be, and created his people to be. I love Isaiah 5, 6, and 7, just real briefly. Isaiah looks around him and sees that all the people are evil. They reject God. Nobody cares anymore. And then Isaiah chapter 6 shows up. In that chapter, we see Isaiah's call to ministry, and he stands before the throne of God, and when he realizes who God is, he says, not only is everyone around me unclean, but I am unclean. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Seeing the glory of God, he does not exalt himself. Rather, he has no choice but exalt the Lord and humble himself. And then his question then is, what hope is there for us? And Isaiah chapter 7 comes along. and says, behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. She'll call his name Emmanuel. That's our hope. Open with me to Genesis chapter 1. We could just say amen right there, couldn't we? <laughs> Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to begin today. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and continuing into the beginning of, verse, of chapter 2, reads this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. 
And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarms according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are great. As Isaiah found out you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, as the one behind a microphone today, I know that I am a man of unclean lips. And like Isaiah, 
We also dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Lord, I pray that just as you did for Isaiah, that you would touch my lips with your coals. And Lord, that you would use me today to teach your word. Lord, I pray that we would respond in worship, in true worship. I pray this in your name. Amen. I know it's been about four weeks. If you can think back to when we introduced the book of Genesis, introduced the Pentateuch, um, we talked about the, the general concern that, that Moses has in writing this book. His concerns are not about science. And even at some level, they're not exactly about history. His concern is not necessarily those particular concerns, although often these books of the Bible are used to try to meet those ends. No, Moses' concern is mostly a theological concern. What he wants to do with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is to show the people of Israel who their God is. Genesis 1 really is, is not a is not just about the beginning of the universe. It is about the God who began the universe. It is about the God who not only began the universe, but also began a covenant with his people. So as we enter into Genesis 1, we have to be very careful about not reading modern concerns into the text. Genesis 1 is not about an argument against evolution. It's not. At the end of the day, what Genesis 1 is all about is about how great God is. Moses wants them to know, wants the people of Israel to know who this God is that has entered into a covenant relationship with them. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, we, we saw that first and foremost, God is Trinity. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We saw that we can, if, we, if we dig deep enough, we can find that right there in Genesis 1.1. By means of the firstborn son, God created the heaven and the earth. And the Spirit of God hovered above the waters. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all acting within creation. We'll see this again later in the chapter when God says, Let us make man in our image. Who's us? It's the triune nature of God himself. God's speaking to himself because he is, he, not because he is a plurality of gods, but because he is one God with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wants them to know that the God that they serve is a triune God. He is unlike any other God that has ever existed, even to this day. No creation of man has ever posited a God that is that is Trinitarian in the way that God of the Scriptures is. What Moses then tries to explain in Genesis 1 is that the Trinitarian God of the Bible is great. That he alone is worthy of worship. So let's begin this morning by asking ourselves a question as we go through this text. Is the Trinitarian God of the Bible great in your life? Is the God of Scripture great in your life? Do you trust Him with every detail, both small and great? 
Do you seek to obey him because he knows what is best for your life? There are so many different directions that this text takes. Genesis 1 is, I know I said this about Genesis 1-1, just Genesis 1-1, but this chapter, we could literally spend four weeks just delving into the depth of this chapter. This, this particular chapter of the Bible is not only an introduction to the Pentateuch, it is an introduction to the entire Bible, and if we get this chapter wrong, we'll miss the rest of the Bible. It is so integral to what's going on in Scripture. We must understand what's going on here. So we must understand Moses' purpose. And again, ask the question, is God great in your life? And does it, not only do you mentally assent to that, but do you actually practice that God is great in your life? First this morning, we're going to look at this from this perspective of the greatness of God. Why is God so great? What is Moses trying to show us about this great God that we serve? First of all, we see in creation that God is great because he is sovereign over all of creation. This creation narrative is not just a detail of certain events or a certain timeline. What's really going on here, imagine the people of Israel. They have just been called out of Egypt. Egypt, with their cult religions, which the plagues themselves, as we'll get to in Exodus, the plagues themselves attack those exact cult, cultic religion, cultic religious gods. Every single plague is directed against a god of Egypt. So here we have in Genesis, what Moses is showing is that God is sovereign. He is in control over every one of the gods and deities that they see around them. So as, as, as he works through this, um, the, these things that, we often, that, that people will generally look at and say, hey, that thing is really great. The sun, that's an awesome, pretty cool thing. You know, it gives us heat, it gives us light. That must be God, right? Or the moon, well, that gives us light at night. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's got to be God or a God. Then you have the sun God and the moon God and the star gods and the water God and the, the sea monster gods. And you have the, the, the you know, uh, 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 whatever else, the light God, the day God, the night God, whatever. We get you know, this whole pantheon of gods. If you've studied any kind, anything about ancient religions, Greek mythology or ancient Babylonian mythology, you'll see this is consistent in the world that, the, that these people lived in, that the ancient Egyptians lived in. What Genesis shows then, what Genesis 1 is showing is that all of these things, every one of these aspects of creation, are all merely instruments in the hand of God. The sun is not an ultimate thing. It is an instrument in the hands of God. In fact, what's also really interesting about this, did you notice that God creates light and darkness before he assigns that task to the sun, moon, and stars? Determining day and night was determined before God gave that task to the sun, moon, and stars. The sun, moon, and stars do not control God. Time itself does not control God. God is so far outside of those things and so far above those, thi those things. He is God. He is great because he is sovereign over creation. But not only is God sovereign over the, 
over, over the idols and the false gods, these, these things that became false gods uh, for Israel's neighbors, God is also sovereign over our idols. Now, we don't tend to worship the sun or worship the moon or worship the stars or worship little statues or, or fear that there's some great sea monster that's a god that's going to, that's going to kill us if we go on, the, go on that we might be afraid for other reasons, but not because a sea monster is some kind of god that might be angry at us, right? Those aren't the things that we, in, in, our, in our modern Western world, don't think that way, but, but be careful that you then assume that we don't worship idols. The heart of man is an idol factory, Jeremiah tells us the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And we'll see that in the coming chapters. In the, in, uh, we'll see that next week specifically. But God is also sovereign over our idols. So what do idols look like for us? Money. Sex. Athletic events. At any kind of level. High school all the way up to Whatever even elementary, whatever, sports in general, jobs, relationships, children, grandchildren, our comfort. All of these things, if we make them ultimate things, become idols in our life. Those things are not ultimate. My children do not deserve my worship. I love them very dearly, but they are not worthy of my worship. Only God is ultimate. Only God is worthy of my worship. God's commands then are not merely suggestions just in case you get around to it. That's how we often treat the Bible. We find a command in scripture. We say, you know, someday I might deal with that one, you know, or, or he didn't mean me. You know, I'm the exception to that particular rule. God's commands are not merely suggestions just in case you get around to it. Tithing, gathering in a local congregation, being faithful to your spouse, obeying your parents, these things at some level are mostly about priorities. There's other issues that are at place there, but a lot of this is about priorities as well. Will you worship the Lord in these areas of your life? Will you worship and obey God rather than worship spending time at the lake? Will you worship and obey God rather than worship your children and grandchildren? Will you worship and obey God rather than your concept of financial security? Will you worship and obey God rather than your comfort, your self-centered desires, your laziness, your sleep, your job, you name it. Will you choose to worship God rather than those things? Every time we replace worship of the Lord with those things, we replace God in those areas. And we make those things ultimate. Anything in your life that becomes ult an ultimate thing except God becomes your functional God. You may not call it God, but essentially you're living your life as if it is God. Moses, Moses was well aware of the people's proclivity to do this, of humanity's proclivity to do this. If you read, again, you read the rest of the Pentateuch, you see how the people of Israel consistently were trying to worship other gods. 
whether it be a golden calf or goat demons or, or, or financial security, whatever it was, the people of Israel continually were looking for other things to worship besides the Lord. He knew that Israel would be tempted at every turn to veer off and worship the gods of the cultures around them. Now, if we keep reading the story, we find out they did just that. They began worshiping those gods. We have the same temptation. Do you really believe that God is ultimate? Do you really believe that he is king of kings and that he is Lord of lords? You may say, well, pastor, of course I believe that. That's fine. But do you live your life like that's true? Do you trust him with every detail of your life? Are your priorities in line with his priorities? God is great because he is sovereign. That means he's in charge over all of it. He's greater than all of it, than all of creation. A second truth we see in this passage is that God is great because he created us to be his representatives. Something special happens when he gets to the creation of man. He says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And it says that God created man in his image. Man and, man and woman, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's pretty repetitive. Why? Because it's an important point. We have this question then, what does it mean to be the image of God? And, and often, and I don't want to belittle things that you may have heard or whatever, but oftentimes we tend to say, well, the image of God in man is, his, uh, is the fact that, that mankind has a rational soul. We're able to, to, to think and rationalize, and that separates us from animals, and that's what makes us in the image of God. Or we have a soul, or whatever, you know, whatever your, your anthropology is in that particular instance. In any of those cases, though, most likely that is us imposing what we think is important onto the text. The text never clarifies exactly in this particular passage what the image of God is in man. So we go through the rest of the Bible to find out what this means that, that, that we are made in the image of God. And what we really come to find out is that what this means in, in the image is probably not the best way to understand this, but maybe as the image. Well, God, we are made as the image of God. In other words, we are, given a, uh, we are given a role to be God's representatives on this earth. That God creates man with this royal representative role. There's a uniqueness about the creation of mankind. And it's not some spiritual versus physical kind of uniqueness. Although there are those, there, those are there as well. But in this particular passage, it is, it is more this idea of being made a representative. Every human is created with the purpose of being God's representative to the rest of creation. This is in contrast to the pagan God's idea of mankind. In, in most other, if not all, other mythologies, God creates man because gods are lazy. Right? They create this earth and say, I don't want to take care of that. Let's get, make these humans and they can take care of it. Right? Making humans the functional slaves of the gods. But here, Moses shows the God of the Bible, the God of the covenant that we have, been, that we have made. He didn't create us to be his slaves. 
He created us to be his royal representatives to creation. Given a very special purpose. Paul says also that Jesus is the image of the Father. So there's also an element where this is, this is not only being created to be God's representatives, but also being created with a relationship with the image, who is Jesus Christ. Mankind fails to be God's representatives. So the eternal Son of God, who is the image of the Father, takes on humanity so that he can faithfully fulfill the role of God's representative for us. The ultimate representative of God to man is Jesus Christ. So then how can we represent God? If we are sinful people, how can we possibly represent God? The only way that we can rightfully represent God and correctly represent God is through Christ. Because he is the one who is the real, true representation of God. The representative of God, excuse me. If every human then, by creation, is obligated to represent God then every human is obligated to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, that does not mean that every single person will trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, but it is the duty of man to do so. And when people do not worship Jesus Christ, do not give their lives to Jesus Christ, they are failing to be completely human. To refuse Christ is to refuse God's purpose for your creation. So then, if we are to represent God and bear his image, then we must fulfill that created role by taking the gospel to the nations. If we are to represent Christ, and that is to bear the image of Christ, the image being Christ himself, if we are to take Christ and represent Christ to the nations, if that is our created task, then we are obligated to take the gospel to the nations by our very creation. The only way to be fully human, to be human in the way that God intended us to be human, is to take the gospel to those around us, to be God's representatives to those who have not put their faith in Christ so that they can become fully human. It's, it's so interesting how the missional heart of God is just poured out even in the beginning chapters of Genesis. That God is the God over all of creation and over all of humanity and over all of the nations. And humans are meant to be his representatives. Therefore, we are called to be representatives to the nations on behalf of God. Not only are we supposed to represent him by showing the gospel, but we also are to show the world what godliness looks like by our lives. We must abide then by his precepts, by his priorities, and by his practices. So God is great because he is sovereign over creation. God is great because he created us to be his representatives. He made us in his image. And third, we see this morning that God is great because he knows what is best for us. God is great because he knows what is best for us. It's an interesting aspect of the creation narrative. What, it's really interesting how, how, he, how Moses, uh, how, how, how he uh, lines this out. He starts out by saying that the earth is without form and void. Now, usually when we hear that phrase, we get this idea 
But what's going on here is that there's kind of this cosmic mush going on, and God hadn't formed it yet, right? But that's actually not how the text reads. It's not how the text portrays itself. What it says is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All of the cosmos, boom, created. So what is going on then in these days of creation? Tohu vabohu, this phrase which means, this Hebrew phrase which means without form and void, is used again in Jeremiah. After the complete reversal of creation, when things were made completely disharmonized and the, and the people of Israel were removed from the land, Jeremiah looks back and he says, the land is without form and void. In other words, it is unfit for human habitation. So that then helps us understand what Genesis 1 is doing. When God creates the heaven and the earth in that instantaneous moment, it's not ready for humanity yet. It is unfit for human habitation. Essentially, you have a ball filled with water, a ball that's covered in water. And so the creation narrative then is slowly but surely God separating, separating the, 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 dry, the land from the sea, giving boundaries to the water. No longer will the water, will the, is, is the earth going to be covered in the water as it once was. God has put boundaries around that water and set up a place for it. Light and darkness are separated. And, 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 and God separates trees and plants and animals and all these different things, preparing the land for his people to live in. And notice what happens at every single turn. God, turn, God says, and it was good. God saw that it was good. The, the Hebrew, this is so interesting, the Hebrew word there is tov. So God is making creation from tohu vabohu, right? Unfit for human habitation, without form and void, and make, changing it from that to tov, to good. Making it unfit for human habitation to making it perfect for human habitation. Good for humans, a good place for humans to live, a good land for people to live in. God, he, it's also interesting how he uses this phrase, God saw that it was good. Moses, this concept of God being a God who sees is central to Moses' concept of who God is. This, this idea of, of God seeing is this idea that, that when God sees something, he can recognize what it is and he makes a judgment call about that. Right? Just as in Genesis 1, as God speaks... So it happens. When God speaks, his word is final. So when God sees, his judgment is final. When he sees this day of, a day of creation, he says, that's good. He's saying, that is what it needs to be for my representatives to live. He also does the same thing in Genesis chapter 6 when he sees the evil of the world right before the flood comes. God sees, and he makes that judgment call. But it's not just a term of judgment. It is also a term of provision. We see what God is doing as, he, as God sees that something is good. It is that there is something being provided for life to be sustained. God provides what humans need. God knows what is good for humans, and then he provides it for them. Here then is the sad reality we'll see, 
we'll delve into more next week, but then the fall of humanity, humanity's fall into sin when they rebelled against God, when we rebelled against God, it's not only sin, but it's the work of fools. Moses is showing the sad limits of human wisdom. In fact, just, just to kind of give a preview, God sees this is good. God sees this is good. At the end of de- creation of day six, he sees that the creation of man and woman, this, this relationship there, it is very good. Then he sees one thing that's not good, and that's man should not be alone. When, when Genesis 2 kind of opens up what's going on in the sixth day of creation, gives us some more detail, he sees that man should not be alone. It's not good that man is alone, so he creates a partner fit for him. What's the first thing that humans see as good? Eve looked at the tree and said it was good for food, saw that it was good for food. Moses is showing us we have no idea what's good for us. We have no clue. God knows what is best for us. God knows what is good for us. And we just don't have a clue most of the time. Human wisdom would say, we see that there's a limit to human wisdom. So let's think about our own human wisdom in today's world. Human wisdom would say that you should live together with your boyfriend or girlfriend so that you know what it's like before you get married. But that kind of wisdom is foolish. Human wisdom says that gender is a human construct and that homosexuality is acceptable, but such wisdom is foolish. Human wisdom says that small lives are okay, but such wisdom is foolish. It's not wisdom at all. Human wisdom says that the Bible is not authoritative when I don't agree with it. Human wisdom says that I don't need to pray if I read my Bible, or that I don't need to read my Bible if I pray, that I don't need to go to church if I read my Bible and pray, that I don't have to share the gospel if I'm not as good of a Christian as I think I I ought to be. All such, quote-unquote, wisdom is utter foolishness. Because going against what God says is good for us. Each of these human wisdoms are clearly outlined in Scripture as sin. When we take that human wisdom, God calls that sin. Accepting sin as a, pervert, as a preferred lifestyle is utter foolishness. Why did Christ die? Right, this comes back to the idea, why did Christ die? He died to save us from our sins, to be wisdom for us because we are so foolish. Thus, when we choose sin over disobedience, Christian, when we choose sin over, over obedience, what we essentially do is we spit on the sacrifice that Christ made. Say, what you did for me doesn't matter. Your sacrifice for me didn't matter to me. Rather, Christians, let us choose obedience. If you're not a believer, human wisdom is utter foolishness. God has provided a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. He is wisdom for us so that we might be saved. Fourth this morning, and finally, we see that God is great because he is enthroned in his temple. 
see that God is great because he is enthroned in his temple. In the, in the beginning of chapter 2, God rests on the seventh day of creation. Now, oftentimes we think of that again as, as a, this is a cessation of activity, that God's just done, right? He's like, sits on the couch, he's like, okay, oh, that was exhausting, right? Of course, what? none of this is exhausting for the Lord at all, right? He speaks and it happens. So what does it mean that God rests? Does it mean that he, he stopped doing anything in the world anymore? No. We see clearly in Scripture that God is active in the world. He is not only transcendent and far above us, he is imminent and with us. He is both transcendent and imminent. So this idea of rest, what is it talking about? What does he mean? In the ancient, in ancient Near Eastern myths that Israel would have been aware of, uh, after a God built his temple, that God would come to dwell in that temple, revealing his authority over that temple space. So essentially what Moses has done is in, in having God create this world, this entire cosmos, this, this entire universe functions as the temple of God. It is his temple. God is not limited to a house. Even when the tabernacle was built and when Solomon built a temple, God is not limited to that particular space. He is God over the entire universe. And after creating his temple, he sits on the throne. That's what it means when God rested. After creating his temple, he sat down on his throne as ruler over all of creation. God, when he creates his temple, that is the entire cosmos, enthrones himself, revealing his authority over the entire creation. God is not limited by a place. He has dominion and authority over all of creation. He is on the throne. This church does not encapsulate God. This building is what I mean. This building does not encapsulate God. God doesn't live in this house. It's not like he has a bedroom somewhere in here that we keep for him. No, this is a place where believers who are the body of Christ can gather together and worship together and fulfill those one another's that scripture commands us to fulfill. But this building is not, is not a dwelling place for God in the kind of way that Israel thought the temple was. God doesn't need, in fact, when Solomon builds the temple, God says, I just want to remind you, I've never needed a house before, um, and I don't need one now. You can build the place, but look, if you guys disobey me, this place is going to get destroyed, and I, okay, like, it doesn't bother me that much. God's like, it doesn't bother me if this house gets destroyed, because it's not, that's, that's not the, that's not the end of the deal, right? This place is just a place. So it is in creation. But not, not only is this, a, is this a declaration of God's, of God's uh, uh, his being seated on the throne and his rule over all of creation, this verse is also an eschatological promise. In other words, it's a promise to the end of time. Not only is God reigning, but part of God reigning, part of God being on the throne is that he brings peace. The original promise purpose of creation, the original nature of creation was that it was a perfect place for humans to live in harmony with God and his creation. When sin entered into that world, that harmony was broken. But God resting on the seventh day 
shows us that's, that one day it's going to be better. One day there will be peace again and harmony. In fact, what's really interesting about this, if you look back at, the day, at day seven, notice what does not happen. After every day of creation, it says, and it was evening and it was morning, whatever day, right? At the end of day seven, it doesn't say that. Why? Because the seventh day is never, God has never stopped reigning on his throne. God has never stopped his promise to bring peace. God created the cosmos to be in harmony with him. After man sinned, that peace was destroyed. However, Christ came to restore that peace. One day he will fully restore that peace. By the end of Revelation, God promises to restore the peace that he intended for creation. That's a great God. So the creation story is not just about some historical thing. It is also about what God is going to do in the future what he is doing now through Christ and what we have one day be able to look forward to, peace and eternity with him. Heaven is going to be wonderful. What a great God we serve. This is what Moses seeks to communicate in this opening chapter. And again, this chapter is so full and pregnant with meaning and with, with so many different, it was, it was very difficult as a preacher to say, what do I talk about? What do I not talk about? Because I'm pretty sure nobody would appreciate a three-hour sermon. I could have. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Moses seeks to communicate at least these things and so much more. The Trinitarian God of the Bible alone is worthy of worship. That's what Moses wants us to know. He alone is worthy of worship. The Trinitarian God of the Bible alone is worthy of worship. So let me ask you again. Is the Trinitarian God of the Bible great in your life? Do you trust him for every detail? Small details, big details. Do you trust him? Do you trust him to do what is good for you? Do you seek to obey him because he knows what is best for your life? As we come to this time of invitation, perhaps as a Christian, you've accepted the grace of Christ. But if you're like me, there are so many times that even though I've trusted Christ, I still don't live like it. I still try to put myself on the throne of my own heart. And maybe this morning, God is calling you to repentance. We have a time of invitation coming. There's nothing special about this time necessarily. It's, it's the moment for you to respond as God has, called, as God has given you this, the opportunity to respond. It's an opportunity for you to respond before you leave this place, before you forget about responding. If you're a believer... And there's an area of repentance in your life that you need to make. Or if you just want to rejoice at how great God is, use this time of invitation to do just that. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you see a passage like this and you say, I I've never understood God to be that great. I didn't know that Jesus was doing that for me. This is an opportunity to say, to tell 
to confess sin to the Lord and say, I want your salvation. If you want to know how to do that, you can come and ask me. I'd love to talk to you about how, how you can accept Christ as your Savior, how you can believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If there's any other things that, that you may be dealing with, maybe you want to join the church, maybe you just want somebody to pray with you, come down to the front. I'd love to spend some time and pray with you and talk with you. Grab me after the service if, you, if you'd be uncomfortable with coming up in the, at the, in, in the service. Grab me afterwards. I'd love to chat with you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. God, you are great. You are so far above me. You are so far above anything that I try to replace you with. Lord, I, I repent that too often I try to replace you as God in my life. I pray that you would forgive me for that. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who needs to realign their lives with you, adjust and come back to you, God, I pray you use this time for us to make, the, to, to make some of those decisions. I pray this in your name. Amen.